quiet your mind. Ever since the Earth has circled the sun, there have been fantastic tales of wonder and mystery that the faint of heart dare not discuss. But three brave, uninformed souls have the brass to tackle every extraordinary happenstance from the modern age to the dawn of Mantis. Welcome to Dawn of Mantis Mysteries, True Crime, and more True Crime Mysteries and more, however you want to say it. If you want to talk to us, you can call us at any time, 417-462-6847, or that's 417-4-MANTIS. I'm Ivan. We have Joe and Sam. How are you guys today? Good. Well. All right. So, we're going to get into this case really quickly today, right? I think because so. we've been waiting for this for a long time. Yeah. And to me, this is the classic, why do bad things happen to good people? You know, this town, they turn into Batman. They decide to take the law into their own hands. That's <laughs> the way I look at it. Right, Joe? Are you with me on that? It was a long time coming, but that is what it eventually came to. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. A long time coming. <laughs> it was not a willy-nilly, like, you know, the, yes. Yeah, and they just murdered this poor guy, right? <laughs> what i'm getting at. i'll let you decide <laughs> what was the doobie brother song long train running yeah there this you is a long time coming long time coming. oh yeah and this is something like we said before on other episodes we've brought this topic up before many times and we said why don't we do the damn followed thing? by we need to do that one of these days and so several months of research and 96 pages of notes later here we are baby this will be our longest series yet. It's going to bypass our Buddy Holly series. Oh, man. Amazing. I think yeah. a lot of the research happened during our break. It did. Didn't it? Yeah. 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 Joe didn't take a break. I didn't, my friends. I researched the shit out of this during that six weeks. I'm excited. Well, let's preface this. So the case we're beginning to cover today, really, it's really unlike anything else that we've ever done before. And I can guarantee that as we unpack the details, you, the listener, will have to pick your jaw up off the floor more than a few times. In fact, while doing this research, there were several times where I got so angry and so frustrated that I had to step away from the keyboard and go outside and pace around the yard till I calmed down again. It's hard to believe that one man could inflict many years of terror on an entire community and face zero, zero consequences from the law, but it happened. That's the judicial system for you. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's hard to believe that one man could threaten, stalk, harass, molest, and even shoot multiple people in one small community and face no consequences. So from, from your notes? Yes. <laughs> I didn't type the F word in. No, oh, okay. I was gonna... Everyone who's covered this labeled this as the Skidmore bully or the town who killed their bully or something like that. Okay. Bully is not a strong enough word. Okay. Granted, bullies suck. And in my opinion, they rank right up there with stalkers and molesters on the douchebag scale. But what Ken McElroy did was more than bullying. In one of the documentaries I watched, a few of the locals used a much more fitting title for him, and that was domestic terrorist. That's what I was going to say. I was going to say what would be a bigger word. That's great. That's yeah. great. It's the perfect name. Domestic terrorism. So yes. were these documentaries on YouTube or other things as well? The best one was a five or six part series done by, I think, the Sundance Network or channel called No One Saw a Thing. Okay. And I definitely have my problems with it as well, 
the reason it's useful is because they interview a lot of people from then that are still, a lot of these people, this was 1981, so a lot of these folks are dead. But a lot of them that are still around and a lot of McElroy's children that are grown now, they interview them. I'll cover it later, but the way they come at it is... I have a problem with, but yeah, I have so many. Like, I already have so many questions, but I just kind of want to wait because I feel like you're going to cover it somewhere in all this, anyways. Like, kind of just you you mentioned his children. I'm like, well, how do they land on? You know, like where's their feelings on how all this is? But oh, well, yeah. we'll we'll get to that. Is that I'm, in, I'm sure? Is that in the 96 pages? Yeah, <laughs> it is. Okay, yeah, <laughs> okay. You wouldn't let us down. I know you wouldn't. Yeah, I I will go in depth on what the problems I have with the Sundance documentary. That's available on YouTube. Yeah, it's on okay. YouTube. All all the parts. Okay. Uh, and yeah, we'll get into that for sure. And as we get into the rest of the story, you'll see what I mean. I promise you'll be blown away at the complete ineptitude of the local government and law enforcement and how they failed the community of Skidmore at every turn. Wow. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing. On one muggy day in July 1981, a few dozen town folks surrounded McElroy's truck, and three of them drew their rifles and shot him dead. The media has branded this an act of vigilante justice, but I look at it as an act of self-defense. I thought this was going to take 96 pages. We just wrapped that thing up. (laughs) (laughs) Done. Finished with six minutes, 15 seconds. No. Let's get into the details. That was the summation. Okay. That's like that's like a Tarantino thing where you see the very end <laughs> scene. You're like, how did this all happen? Yeah. Well, I'm just letting now, folks know. Yeah, that's that was the end result. Now let's go back, you know, 47 years yeah. and work up to that. So yeah, this is basically one man is at the epicenter of this entire thing, and that is the man that was murdered that day. His name was Ken McElroy. So let's start with him. Okay. Ken McElroy's life ended on July 10th, 1981, but his death forever combined his story and that of the town, twisted together in a saga that persists to this day. But Ken's hell-raising was never confined to just the single speck on the map that is Skidmore, Missouri. In fact, the events that ramped up to Ken's conflict with the town and ultimately led to his death there didn't occur until the latter part of his 47 years. Having said that, we need to start the saga where it began, and that's with Ken's life. Okay. Ken McElroy's story began 140 miles southwest of Skidmore in an even smaller community in eastern Kansas. His father, Tony, was young, just 20, and his mother, Mabel, was 14 when she gave birth to their first boy, a child named Herschel. Now, this was back, way back, (laughs) when that could happen, and it was okay. I'm talking the 20-year-old man with the 14-year-old female. Tony and Mabel were polar opposites. Mabel, throughout her life, was reserved, gentle, patient, and caring. Tony, on the other hand, was loud, likable, and boisterous when sober, and loud, combative, and ornery when drunk. It may have been talking about me. I don't know. No, maybe. No. I'm loud and combative, but not ornery. No. Or maybe I'm loud and ornery, but not You're not combative. combative. I'm not That's, combative. Yeah, you, yeah, you mess up. He says that different than I do. What? Combative? Or- ornery. Well, ornery? Well, I wrote it ornery, and then there's it, ornery. It is O-R-N- yeah, it's, E-R-Y? Yeah, ornery. Yeah, I mean, you're saying how it's spelled, but I just... <laughs> quit being ornery. I mean, it was just a few years ago, I saw it written for the first time, I was like, what the hell is that? Oh, yeah, I know what it is. <laughs> it was, it's such a weird... It's weird. Orn, it's, it's ornery? A-W-N-R-Y? It's not that. <laughs> ornery. Ornery? I don't know. I'm just being ornery. <laughs> you're being ornery. Get it right. Even on his best days, he cursed like a sailor and rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. You need to rub them the right way, don't you? That's right. 
But as best I can tell, he was always good to Mabel, who, over the next 25 years, would bear Tony 16 children, but not all in eastern Kansas. Somewhere in 1927, the family moved to the Ozark Mountains in southern Missouri, and it was there the McElroys finally made a real go of it. Tony rented a 400-acre farm near Lamar, and he, along with the boys who were old enough, took to the fields and planted corn, a crop that started out well. It started out well, y'all. Okay. But this was followed by a several-week-long drought, and it ended up being a total loss. Oh, no. No crop profits meant no money for rent, and the McElroys were on the road, on the road again. Mm. For the next couple years, Tony worked a variety of odd jobs across southern Missouri and eastern Kansas before finally settling into the tiny community of Quitman. Now, that is six miles from Skidmore. So we're, we're getting into the area now. Okay. It was there that Tony and Mabel became tenant farmers. And it was also there that Mabel gave birth to her final two children. And that would be Ken Rex, whom we're talking about today. Okay. And that was on June 16th, 1934. And then after him, a boy named Tim. And that was roughly two years later. Okay. This means that Ken spent the majority of his childhood as the son of a tenant farmer. Now, for those of you who don't know what a tenant farmer is, there are several ranks in the farmer's hierarchy. At the top is the quote-unquote rich farmer. He's the one with a lot of land. Most of it's paid for, right? Mm -hmm. Drives a new truck. Then there is the yeoman farmer. Now, he's the one with half a dozen kids, a couple hundred acres. Most of that's owned by the bank, the land, not the kids. And he makes it each year, but just barely, right? By the skin of his four teeth. Okay. (laughs) Then there's the bottom of the barrel, the tenant farmer or sharecropper. Mm. Yeah, when you say sharecropper, that immediately learns about. I'm not familiar with tenant farmer, but I am now because I'm learning stuff. Sharecropper is the, that's the far more common one, right? I like learning stuff here. I forget how much stuff I learn here. (laughs) Seriously. Well, the sharecropper, that guy, him and his family lived in someone else's house on someone else's land, and they raised someone else's crops Mm. for a small share of the yield. That's what Mm -hmm. they got. This is where the McElroys landed and lived in total poverty. Their small home, void of electricity or running water, was packed to the brim with kids they could barely take care of. Hey, you know what? Let's have another kid. Might can't, as well. Can't feed 14, can't feed 15. What's the difference? Yeah, right. That's true. <laughs> well, they eat for free for a while. That's right. Sort of. Just corn. It's just corn. Well, I mean, out of the mother. Oh, there you go, yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I meant. Whoops. <laughs> Like I just, I just pictured him. Get out here, of here. Have this corn on the cob. Just gum on that till you get some nutrients. <laughs> no wonder all them boy, all them babies are so skinny. Just send them out to the fields, gnaw on the corn, you little shits. <laughs> <laughs> Mama's even giving corn milk. I don't know. But this is how Ken McIlroy spent the first year of his life, and he resented every moment of it. He hated watching his father work someone else's land for a minuscule cut of the profits, right? It ain't fair. No, it's not. The bitterness of this upbringing would never leave Ken, and it would play a large role in who he eventually became. Yeah. Well, Ken Rex was different right out of the gate, okay? He shucked off his chores. He did what to him? No. (laughs) That's a a phrase. Yeah, and they were a corn farmer, right? He shucked them off. (laughs) Does that make sense? 
that's what relevant. What if that was a Freudian slip? It probably was. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, he developed a pretty fiery temper and paid no attention at school. And when he decided to go, was rare. His siblings knew to just stay the hell out of his way. And that was all before he was even a teenager. Mm-hmm. Okay. Even his father was quick to tell someone that out of all the kids, and I think there was like 16, probably said it earlier, Ken was the one you shouldn't fool with. Mm. Stay away from little Ken. Now, if I want to apologize right out of the gate to our friend Ken from Australia, because for the next nine episodes, we're going to say, man, that Ken was sure an asshole. <laughs> but it's hard to even say that because I love this other Ken, but we're not talking about you. To- <laughs> Tony had spent much of Ken's early life yelling at him and trying to discipline him, but around Ken's 13th birthday, Tony finally gave up and pretty much just let the kid do as he pleased. Just give up. Just do whatever the hell. Yeah. What's the worst that could happen? Exactly. Everything that we're about to cover. (laughs) Oh, 96 pages, Ken. Oh, okay. But that is a good parental strategy. Try for a few years, and if it doesn't work, yeah, to hell with them. It's true. All right. But it was also around this time that some good news finally befell the McElroy family. Tony had managed to purchase a small farm and house, 175 acres of land total, actually, just outside of Skidmore. Skidmore. You called it, brother. Mind you, the family was still poor, but at least they had their own farm, right? They weren't sharecropping some other mother's farm. Not making somebody else rich. Yeah. By this time, several of the McElroy kids were grown and married, and a few of those couples and their kids moved back into this house And at that time, a total of 18 people were living in, like, this three-bedroom farmhouse. Yeah. A lot of people. A lot of kids. In a house that full and chaotic, it was every man for himself and woman. I want to be inclusive. Very good of you, sir. Uh, (laughs) Same went for his time at school where everyone knew to stay the hell away from Ken. Everybody knew that. But thankfully for the children at Graham School, Ken barely ever even went there. Maybe he was a lonely guy then. Think about, say the hell away from him. Maybe that's what happened with all this. Maybe that's where this all started. Yeah. I guess I'm too mean. (laughs) Go ahead. He spent most of his time running the woods with his coon dogs or out riding horses. By his teenage years, Ken knew every square inch of the woods and land in all of Nottoway County and even beyond. Mm -hmm. He had a friend named John, and the pair would constantly cut class and head out the countryside. It was also around this time Kim began to foray into an activity that would last for the rest of his life, theft. Oh, I thought you were going to say drinking. <laughs> Shot at me. No, I don't know. Was, I, <laughs> drinking would come along very quickly, too. Though. Okay. He and John would case out a place, wait for the farmer to head out to the fields, and then raid his barn or shed for tools and parts. Mm-hmm. They'd also uh, wait till dark, park Ken's Ford near a silo and fill the back with grain, then drive to the next town and sell it for a bargain price. Wow. Mm-hmm. Dang, this is cheap grain. <laughs> <laughs> Once when the transmission went out in Ken's 36 Ford, they snuck into a farmer's shed where a similar car was parked, jerked out its transmission, and stabbed it in Ken's car by supper time. Whoa. I wonder if they put his back in there. I wonder if they did. Yeah. It's like, oh, man, this thing won't go in reverse all of a sudden. I would like to think they didn't, where he just yeah, got in I and started they... it. It's like, my transmission's going. What the hell? My transmission went out. Oh, yeah, it did. It's not there. It's out. Like, it totally went out. <laughs> it went out and never came back. It went out to get a pack of smokes and never came back. <laughs> By this time, it was the early 1950s, and Ken and his friend both looked the part. I'm talking pressed jeans, white t-shirts, slick back hair, a cigarette behind one ear, and a pack rolled up in the sleeves. 
Mm-mm. <laughs> this was not lost on the women of Skidmore, by the way, for it seems that along with a bad reputation, Ken's bad boy lifestyle also drew plenty of admiration from the ladies. Girls do like a bad boy, don't they? Yes. Don't know why. I kind of do. I read about this, and I think there might have been in like a Vsauce video on it. It's protection of the young. Really? Because you're bold and, you know, you wouldn't be afraid to protect your tribe. Okay. Yeah. So, But yeah. girls, listen, a nice guy can protect your young too. He doesn't have to be an asshole. True. You're preaching to the choir now, but yeah. but uh, it's because they feel that, you know, just adds to the, the lust of the whole thing. I remember being a teenager and listening to a girl, like, I'd even ask him, like, what the hell do you see in Tommy? Uh, he can kick some ass. He's badass. And yeah. Like, okay. Yeah, see? I mean, especially right. these little towns, what? like fight or flight mentality where everything's not going so well because of the poverty and stuff. Yeah, a little bit of that. I'll tell you what I look for in a man. A man that can create violence. <laughs> That's all I want. Not only can he kick some ass, but he can be one also. Yes. <laughs> I know he can because he kicks mine, okay? <laughs> because he is. You see that black guy? You see what he done to my face? Imagine what he can do to yours. Don't mess with my man, right? Right. That's what they say. But you weigh 82 pounds. <laughs> uh, domestic violence is not a laughing matter. It is not. We, the victim of that joke, or the victim is the woman, yes. but the victim of our joke is the guy, the douchebag that would hit a woman. Exactly. Thank you. What? We have to explain things like that now? We do in this day and it's age. Sad. Yes. Very sad. We but, do have to. Yeah. What was supposed to be quick took four minutes, but that's okay. Well, I've said that to my wife. Um <laughs> Wait a minute. It was all worth it. That doesn't make sense, I don't think. I don't think it was all worth it. Four minutes is quick. What are you talking about? Don't think it. Don't overthink it. Don't overthink it. Let's just move on. Okay. Sam, leave it in. Uh, That's what yeah. she would like. <laughs> but yes, in summation, yes, even in the 50s in rural Missouri, girls apparently couldn't resist the whole bad boy mystique. Because right. what Ivan said, they can protect our young. Yep. But it didn't hurt that back then, Ken was, according to what I read, quite a looker. Mm -hmm. And now, I don't know what a looker was back then. It may have been like, people said Bundy was a looker. And I'm like, he doesn't look like a looker. But maybe in the 70s, that's what a looker looked like. I don't know. The whole thing was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I just went to whenever Joe said he can protect our young, I was like, yeah. The big asshole can protect the little assholes we just made. And make them the same. Yeah. All right, that's all. Ken had thick, muscular arms and broad shoulders, and thanks to his full-blood Cherokee grandmother, he had a dark complexion, as well as dark brown hair slicked back in that customary 50s style and dark blue eyes set wide apart. There was never a lack of female attention towards Ken Rex, which kind of created the perfect storm because it turned out that Ken, old Ken, had a voracious appetite for sakes. Really? Yes. Anytime he was not running his dogs in the woods, he was taking out girls. And when the girls' parents forbade them to see Ken, which was most of the time, they'd sneak out their windows and meet him in the woods for a little roll in the hay. Ken was only in his early teens at this time, as were his lovers, but even when he gets a gross sentence, even when he grew into an adult, his tastes remain the same. Ugh. We'll get into that later. In 1952, Ken was 18, and he met and married a girl named Olita. This was his first wife, first of several. Okay. 
She was two years his junior and uh, from St. Joe, St. Joseph, that is, and that's a, a much larger town than Skidmore, and it's about 50 miles south. We're going to talk about St. Joe quite a I bit. I might have heard about that. You'll I might have heard of that. Just see, yeah, I look directly south, about 50 miles, you're going to see it. Now that Ken had a wife, he figured it was time to get some honest work, right? No more selling grain, stolen grain. He had a sister who lived in Denver. That's in Colorado, people. And her husband worked construction. When they offered Ken a job, he and Olita packed up and headed for Colorado. They found a modest place, and Ken was actually doing okay working construction, but he wasn't really a fan of city life. Yeah. After six months in Denver, the McElroys moved into the nearby mountains, which Ken was much more comfortable with. While there in the mountains, Olita became pregnant. But after a normal pregnancy with no complications, she unfortunately gave birth to a stillborn child. Mm. Now, that was not the last bad thing to happen to the McElroys while they were there in Colorado. One day, while on a job site, a cribbing, which I'm not sure what that is, but I'm, I'm guessing it's part of a, something that you, work, you stand on on a construction site. Like a, like a uh, scaffolding? Scaffold? Yeah. Maybe that's just another word for it. But a part of a cribbing fell from a building 30 feet up, and it hit Ken Squown head. Hmm. He was wearing his hard hat, but the incredible force split that hard hat right in two, and it badly cut his scalp. Wow. Yeah. It also severely jammed his neck, inflicting nerve damage that would cause Ken to have neck pain and even occasional blackout episodes for the rest of his rotten life. Well, dang, that's what was wrong with him. (laughs) Some said it was. Ken always said he had a steel plate put in his head after the injury, and many people believed it was that head injury, like Sam just alluded to, that would cause Ken to behave the way he did later on. But there's no way to know. Well, with this, Ken decided it was time to leave Colorado. The baby thing didn't turn out well. He got knocked the shit out of by a cribbing. Oh, that's ironic. And sorry, I don't know. It is. I was thinking that earlier. So in 1956, he and Olita, well, they moved right back to Missouri, and they settled back in St. Joe. Now, Ken had no intentions of going straight again, though. He tried working the straight and narrow once, and all he had to show for it was a permanently injured neck, right? So screw that. That's a pain in my neck. (laughs) Plus, the only other legitimate means of earning money he knew of was farming, and there was no way in hell he was going to tenant farm for somebody. Yeah. Screw that. I done saw my peppy doing that, and I ain't doing it. I ain't following his footsteps. Which is a good thing to have in your mind, but then the next thing in your mind should be, Let's figure out a way to, to do better. Right. His was not that. <laughs> that wasn't the next thought. <laughs> it wasn't the next thought. I'm tired of stealing feet, so what's left? Oh, terrorizing people. Well, yeah. I'm and, skipping ahead. but And we'll... still stealing feed. Oh, and, okay. And other things. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> yeah, because the next sentence reads, Ken fell back on his knack for stealing. <laughs> he started out by cruising the back roads and casing out the many farms that dotted the Missouri countryside during the day, looking for hogs or calves, fat and ready for the sale. So he basically turned to livestock. Oh, okay. Then he'd return at night, sneak into the field, fetch the animal, and throw it in the back of his Ford before taking off. So heavy animals. You know, these calves and hogs, they can be several hundred pounds apiece. So he reinforced the back of his old Ford with plywood to carry these critters. And he even rigged his brake lights to to a toggle switch so he could turn them off at night. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He could get 50 or $60 per animal, and sometimes he'd steal three a night. So those of you not uh, real adept at math, that's up to $180 a night. And this is back in the 50s and 60s. That's a pretty good profit margin. Of, yeah, man. That's Spend a lot of zero, get 60? Yep. 
That's a good profit. Hundred percent profit margin, <laughs> less the gas that you had to get. That oh, was that's probably true. Nine cents a gallon. Back that's true. Ninety nine percent profit margin. <laughs> it wasn't honest work, sure, but to Ken, it beat the hell out of jackhammering, ditch digging, or sharecropping. It seemed like a lot of this money went towards one of Ken's favorite pastimes, and this is something Ivan alluded to: drinking. Hmm. He'd hit every bar in Nottaway and the six surrounding counties. He was always out drinking, usually with one or two younger boys he'd enlisted in helping with his thieving activities. So he had some henchmen, let's call him that. Okay. He also uh, was also often in the company of young ladies, and I'm going to say girls. Let's say girls, young yeah. girls. I don't think they're ladies when they're 14. Kids. Okay. Kid. Children. I gotcha. Children. Remember what we said earlier about Ken's taste? You know, like when he was 14, he liked to have sex with 14-year-olds, but mm-hmm. then whenever he was not 14, he still liked to have sex with 14-year-olds. How old is he now? Uh, he's 20, in his 20s. 14? Yeah. So one of these young ladies was a girl named Donna, who Ken got pregnant. She was 14 years old Dang. when she got pregnant. Then there was Sharon, who was 15. Sharon was the first of many people Ken shot with his shotgun. What? And you heard that right. Wow. She was the first of many, many people that he shot with a f***ing shotgun. I guess I did hear that right. Okay. You heard that right, people. The first of many? Like, how many... Sam, how many people have you shot with a shotgun? Zero. Ivan, how many people have you shot with a shotgun? Zero. Minus one. See, I'm, I'm the same. Yeah. So, him, many. Like, I don't even know if you could count on one hand the people he shot with a shotgun. Let's just get... This is... I'm just alluding to the... Well, I want to be minus one, too. I don't want to have shot one more less person than you have. <laughs> well, they shot me, so that's a... I didn't shoot back, so it's a minus one. Oh. You've been shot with a shotgun? No, no, no. Oh, dude, I was like... I just wanted to <laughs> negative one up you. Negative one down you. I was about to be pissed at you it's for never It's impossible. I couldn't be shot negative times. <laughs> or I couldn't have shot negative times. <laughs> Well, I, I don't understand. When you ask me a question, I won't always tell you something that actually makes sense. <laughs> I know that. We know that by now. <laughs> so Sharon and Ken, they were having an argument one night. Okay, and, you're going to explain why? Yes, this okay. is what happened. This All is right. what. They're having an argument, Sharon and Ken, like he's 20-something, she's 15. He pulls a shotgun, pulls out a shotgun. It fires. It hits her in the face. Oh, my. It tears away most of her chin off of the bone. Oh All right? I'm ta- uh, so the police were called. A report was filed. Now, Ken, he insisted the gun had accidentally discharged, but the police weren't buying it. Good. Agreed. This was the first time Ken had risked actually having to pay for one of his crimes, but it was also when he learned a valuable lesson, one that he'd used to largely avoid having to pay any consequences for his crimes for the rest of his life. If you manipulate, intimidate, or eliminate the witness... There was no crime. Hence the name of our series, No Witness, No Crime. Mm. That also plays a part in Ken's death later, but we'll talk about that in 89 pages. Okay. (laughs) Ken discovered that if he were to marry Sharon, he could avoid prosecution for, quote, assault with a deadly weapon charge. Okay. We'll get into that as well. There's a weird law. There's a lot of weird laws in Missouri, or at least there was at this time, where if you were married to someone, they couldn't testify against you and this and that and yada, yada, yada. Wow. He told Sharon the deal, and she agreed. I'm sure he threatened to kill the shit out of her. So he shot her and then got down on one knee? Yes, Hmm. and proposed. So he's already married, right? This is problematic. That's true. He needs to marry marry Sharon 
to avoid prosecution for any of those charges. So what he has to do is he has to set Olita down and explain to her that he's divorcing her to marry Sharon to avoid jail time. Wait, so she's okay with all this affairs and everything? Like, does she know about all that happening? Most of his women knew, and we're thinking about it as rational, non-violent, non-intimidating right. people. Right, well, yeah. They knew, but they didn't right. say a goddamn thing. Yeah. You, you dared mm. to not, right? And Olita was probably relieved. Oh, I'm not going to be married to you anymore? Darn. You know, I mean, that's my... <laughs> I don't know. That's my divorce granted. <laughs> Where do I sign? Yes. Mm. And that's how Sharon became Ken's second wife, and that was in 1958. Well, if that seems a bizarre way to begin a marriage, like we just said, you're right. And it didn't take long for Sharon to realize that she jumped out of the pan and into the fire. Ken would fly off the handle at the slightest thing and beat her mercilessly. Even when she had her first baby by him, a boy named Jerome, he did not let up. By this time, Ken had moved his new family back to the McElroy farm with his mother, Mabel, father, Tony, and younger brother, Tim. They were concerned with how he was treating his new wife, a.k.a. beating her, and, uh, and son. So I will jump a bit ahead and say there were people that liked Ken. There were people that never saw the violent side of him. His kids, from every interview I saw, and they interviewed several of his kids. He had a lot, like 16 or 50, a lot of kids. None of them ever said they saw any of the violence. Now that, you know, later on in the interviews, they said, yeah, mom would have black eyes or mom would have a bruised arm. Mom would have a split lip. But we never saw. The only man they knew, like, apparently he was nice to his kids. He, huh. he was not abusive at all. Or if so, they never said a word about it. The wow. kids uh, all basically universally say... He was nice to us. Okay. I got, you know, you got to mix in the good with the bad. I mean. It's like somebody says, that guy's an asshole. You're like, well, he's always been nice to me. Exactly. But that's your mom. Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's the only thing I'll just kind of throw out there. But it's a different time, different place. I don't know. I'm just just a podcaster here. Well, I just realized the way I wrote that. No, I got you. Made it sound like his son was included in that abuse, but I want to make, you know, Look, we're going to spend the next nine hours talking about how shitty he was. We need to at least recognize the parts that were decent because no one is all good or all bad. Well, he just had an ability to shut it off in front of his kids. Yeah. And according to all of his kids, he was a decent dude. Like, they loved him. Sure. And, uh, you know, we'll get into that more later, too. Gotcha. So, yeah, other than the times he disappeared for days on end, he was home and he was violent. Sharon tried several times to get away, but Ken, he always found her. And the punishment when she tried was brutal. When his sister Helen visited from California in 1960, she was so concerned over Jerome's well-being that she convinced Sharon to let her take him back to California with her. Around this time, Ken showed up on the farm with a 14-year-old girl named Sally. He announced to Sharon that they'd be letting Sally stay with them. Hey, meet Sally. She's this 14-year-old gal. She's going to live with us now. (laughs) She needs a place to stay. She needs a place to stay. I'm just a good guy. I'm just doing the Lord's work. Yeah, right. (laughs) But almost immediately, it was apparent to Sharon that Sally was there to be another of Ken's women. Now, what she didn't know was that Sally was the younger sister of one of Ken's coon hunting buddies and that he'd been fooling around with her since she was 13. Wow. Yeah. Prior to her showing up at the farm, Ken had taken her out and beaten her badly before dumping her on a lawn in town and fleeing the scene. 
Sally had been taken to the hospital and treated by the astonished staff there. Once again, there was talk of pressing charges, and once again, Ken convinced the victim otherwise. You're going to hear that a thousand times, so get used to it. Yeah. Now, here she was, living at his farm. It was said she had protested at first until he threatened to kill her father. You will hear that again, too. There were several of these girls that were going to go to the authorities and report statutory rape or whatever. Uh, He threatened to kill their parents. Um, He did burn down one of their parents' homes. He married her later on. We'll get into that. Um, Dudes, this is just why when I got into this story, I thought it was going to be a four or five part, you know, and I started texting you guys really early on, and I'm like, this is going to be so much more to really cover in depth everything. Yeah. Was going to be so much more. Yeah. Continue on, sir. Well, into this violent and toxic environment was born Sharon and Ken's second child, a girl named Tammy Sue. Again, though, a new baby did nothing to change Ken's behavior. Having already given up on Jerome, Sharon did not want to have to lose her uh, a second child. So one day, while Ken was away, she packed up a few belongings. She grabbed the little baby, Tammy, and fled to the sheriff's office in Maryville, which is about 20 minutes to the east. We'll talk about Maryville a lot as well. There, she finally told authorities everything. She told them about the beatings, having to give up Jerome, and the 14-year-old girl Ken was keeping out of the farm. Okay. (laughs) Once again, the authorities were ready to pounce on Ken McElroy. A social worker was assigned to Sharon and placed her and her baby in hiding on a nearby farm until a formal complaint could be filed. Once that was done, police were standing by to execute a warrant on Ken. But when the social worker brought Sharon to the courthouse to sign the complaint, who do you think was there? Oh, yeah. Ken was there, demanding to speak to his wife. As usual, he sweet-talked Sharon into dropping the whole thing and coming home, this time with a promise to bring her Jerome back from California. He had avoided charges once again. The social worker later said that she'd heard the moment Ken and Sharon had returned back home, he beat the living hell out of her. And you guys might know this, but, like, it's not the case anymore, the whole, well, they didn't press charges. Like, there's a point where if a crime's so violent, I don't think that matters anymore. Right. I think the state can choose to press charges. Right? Yeah, the, I think above so. the individual. That's, and, yeah. and if they can't, there's a huge problem. Right. Like, because it's a crime either way. Yeah. Like, oh, well, here you are battered and bloody. Oh, you're not going to press charges? Oh, no crime. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that makes perfect flawed. sense. Yeah. Oh, oh, he shot you? Oh, you don't want to press charges? Yeah. Okay, everybody go home. No, it's like, yeah. no, he f-ing shot you. Yeah, you that still takes a- it all away. Charges shall be pressed. Yeah. By- yeah. <laughs> don't take him, I love him. <laughs> he said he wouldn't do it again. He would never do it again. It's not his fault, really. He's just under stress. <laughs> Ladies, don't ever, oh, there's some lady potentially listening right now that is going through that. Leave. Leave. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean. Psycho- and I know it's not that easy, but. Yeah, psychologically, they're just tormented. <sighs> I mean, it's, it's very complex, but continue on, sir. Well, this began a strange, violent, and bizarre life at the McElroy farm. Sharon and Sally stayed home. They cooked, they cleaned, and they kept their mouths shut. Ken came and went as he pleased, sometimes only showing up to beat and then have sex with both girls before heading out again. Wow. He also had other girlfriends in other towns, and that was no secret, but they didn't say a damn thing about it, right? They knew better. That became their normal life. 
that and having Ken's babies. In fact, over the next four years, each girl would have three children. One time, both Sally and Sharon were in Fairfax Hospital giving birth to Ken's children at the same time. Holy crap. Yeah. But thankfully for Sally, after she bore his third child, Ken grew tired of her. That tended to happen with Ken. He'd simply get tired of a girl. She was 18. Oh, yeah. Way too old. Um, At this point. She's like elderly to him. (laughs) She was 18 at this point and had three small kids. She didn't have any friends or family in the area, but she decided to move to Maryville. Like that would be a good place to start over. Mm -hmm. She secured a small apartment there and struggled to find work and take care of her kids. One night, to forget her problems for a while, Sally decided to go to a party with a friend. So she hires this high school girl to come watch the kids for a couple hours while she's gone. I don't Mm -hmm. know if she knew the girl that well or what. But while Sally was away, the babysitter invited some of her own friends over and they threw their own party. Okay. At Sally's place. The resulting ruckus caused a visit from the Maryville police, who, finding no responsible adult at home with the children, took them into protective custody. Now they do? <laughs> now they do. Because <laughs> the guy's not around. He's not. <laughs> I'd like a round of applause for a bunch of douchebags. It just get oh, this is the tippity tip tip of the iceberg, man. The county then filed dependency and neglect charges and placed the children in foster care. Oh, okay. Sally had no money. She had no support system to help her get the kids back. Instead, she disappeared. Now, clarify. Mm -hmm. That's the same town from earlier, right? Uh, Yeah, they were in and around Maryville. It's right in the same area. Okay. I was just making sure because keep going. I just want to make sure that (laughs) she went to them for help before. Right. Okay. All right. Just clarify. Yep, yep. So she disappears. She's dejected. She's out. She has no way. She feels to fight to get her kids back. Now, she did show up at the court proceedings that were held to terminate her and Ken's parental rights. Ken did not show up. But she did not show up to contest. Rumor has it that Sally moved to St. Joe and spent time in a mental hospital before eventually becoming a prostitute. Now, in my opinion, there's no doubt that slipping into the clutches of Ken McElroy at such a young age permanently damaged her psyche. Exactly, yeah. When you're, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, with a a man that's in his 20s and you're 13. Yeah, you're still a kid. You are. Yeah. And by the time you're 18, you have three small children. Mm -hmm. She never had a chance to mentally develop. That's right. With Sally gone, Ken was in search of another girlfriend, and it didn't take him long to choose one. Her name was Alice, and Ken had met her a few years earlier when he was 26 and she was 15. But at this point, it was 1964, and although she was pushing 20, now she's 20 now, that's a little old for Ken, like Ivan mentioned earlier, he did decide to ramp up his relationship with her. Alice had a terrible home life and an alcoholic father, and she basically fell head over heels for Ken because, well, pretty much he paid attention to her and he was kind to her at first Mm -hmm. and brought her gifts. Plus, she did find him handsome, a bit dangerous, and he spent money like he had an endless supply. Mm. After informing Sharon that he had a new girlfriend, Ken left her and his kids at the farm to go get an apartment with Alice in St. Joe. So he's like, I'm going to leave you and the kids for a while. I met another girl, and we're going to go get an apartment together. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, I can't even leave the seat up at my house, but this guy, shit. Whoa. What do you do, sir? It's crazy. This guy could pee all over it. (laughs) Nothing would happen. Like, my wife will get mad at me for eating 
her leftovers in the fridge. And this guy had another girlfriend in an apartment somewhere else. Yeah. Well, I mean, these guys unpack it perfectly. They know how to unpack the relationship, if that makes sense. Yep. Like to introduce themselves, do this, do that, do this, to where you're just like, not to call anyone dumb, but it's psychological humiliation, you know? So you're not dumb. You just get, and with these cult leaders, the same thing. They oh, just yeah. know how, uh, almost like a, like a game, like a game plan in football. Like these are our first five plays. Yep. You know? Yep. The word of the day is manipulation. That's right. Yep. And, and earlier, the early stages that I've been reading it a hundred times, the term for it is love bombing. Huh. Sure, yeah. Those early, t- you know, yeah, the early stages where they're just, you're the most beautiful person I've ever seen. You're a goddess and they just give you gifts and you're so gorgeous. That and makes I would, sense. Oh, 100% love bombing. I've never yeah. heard that before, but it totally makes sense. Yeah. You get, they get all the good and it's just like the good in the beginning. Then they start realizing some bad stuff, but they've already been smitten by all the good right. stuff at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, he tells Sharon that he has a new girlfriend, leaves her, and uh, and he gets uh, a new an apartment with this new lady. Now, of course, once he gets her there, right, all that stuff we just talked about, the love bombing and all that, that's gone. Sure. Like fairy tale over. Right. Yeah. <laughs> once they're there, he demands sex, lots of it, and a lot of it was violent. Wow. 100% Damn. change. He'd also beat her for the slightest infraction. And then he'd disappear for days or weeks with no explanation, which, quite honestly, she probably liked after yeah, a while. Yeah, by that yeah. point, it's like, I'm not mad. <laughs> Hopefully he doesn't come back. Well, one time when he reappeared after a week away, he walked in to find Alice putting clothes in a box. Before she could explain that they were simply old clothes she was getting uh, rid of, right, he assumes she's leaving, so he grabs her by the hair and flings her into a wall. Wow. She'd started out being upset when Ken left for a few weeks at a time, but soon grew to dread when he was coming home, just like we just talked about. That's the way it went for Alice for the next several years. Years? Years, wow. my friends. Oh, man. By the late 60s, she'd gotten pregnant twice. The child was stillborn, but the second wow. was a healthy baby boy, and he was born September 19th in 1968. And I can't help. So she would have probably been mid-20s by that point, right? Uh, Yes. Yeah, because she was 20 when they started. Yeah. yeah. And I, it didn't say this in the book or in anything I found, but with all the physical violence. Sure, I was thinking that. Stillborn? I'm, yeah. Oh, yeah. Who has that many stillborn children? Sure. There will be several. So mm-hmm. you wonder, if, if, was it a result of all this? Okay. Yeah. All the beatings. Being like the man, the guy. Yeah. With mm-hmm. that many partners. Yes, with, with that many different female partners who had stillborn children. Sure. I don't think that's an accident. No. But. Yeah, even with this new baby boy, September 19th, 1968, was when he was born, Ken is unmoved. I mean, and that rarely... I don't know why I keep mentioning that in the notes because that rarely happens to where a total shitbag like has a, a child and they're like, oh, I'm, I'm reformed now or whatever. Yeah, you know, yeah. that doesn't really happen. Yeah. Might for five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, Ken's behavior, instead of getting better or even just remaining the same, it gets worse. In 1970, one time, he became so enraged that he grabbed one of his guns and began shooting at Alice. She had to run out of the house and flee in her car but Ken followed in his yellow Cadillac convertible and ran her off the road. He was pulled over by Andrew County Sheriff Reed Miller, remember that name, who, like every other lawman within 100 miles, had heard of Ken. He knew all about his criminal endeavors, his violence towards women, and his hatred for lawmen. That night, Miller and two deputies held Ken in place while Alice fled the county. Okay. She had refused to press charges, saying he'd kill her if she did, Ken. 
And really all she required of them that night was to hold him in place long enough for her to get away. But she was still mm. too scared to file charges. Mm. So even then she was, the fear was, you know, the hooks are in. The mental manipulation and everything is, is, is as such that she was even afraid to file charges then. Yeah. So, and I'm sure he'd probably told her a thousand times the old saying that these guys say, if you, you know, if I can't have you, no one can have you. Or if you try to leave me, I'll kill you. Mm. That's just the unfortunate truth of it. Just wish one of these cops would have had some like Batman in them, you know? No, we won't see a cop with any Batman in them for years <laughs> in this story. For years. <laughs> there is one. There is one later on. All, but, their, uh, all their parents must have lived and never <laughs> yeah, had anything. A traumatic murder. Yeah. Nope. No Batman in this story yet. Hmm. But uh, there's a uh, county, no, I think he's a highway patrolman, Missouri highway patrolman named Richard Stratton, and he's a Batman motherfucker. Okay. We'll meet him later okay. on. Let's wrap it up for part one. Yeah. And then we're going to pick up on our story here in uh, part two. So we'll see you guys next week. Okay. Uh, anything else you guys want to wrap it up? No. No, I just can't wait till next week. Let's do it. Let me tell you about some fellas I know Named Ivan, Sam, and Joe They got themselves a little podcast, you know They talk about everything under the sun That they find interesting, spooky, or fun And they sure ain't trying to impress no one The remedy to too much time on your hands is Take a little to the dawn of Manti We talk about killers, monsters and cults French mates from hell, disappeared folks Occasionally throw in a few dad jokes They try to make every story extra nice By adding their own ginger spice not one time or two, but thrice. Right, 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 right. The remedy to too much time on you hands is take a little listen to the dawn of Manti. Now I'm sure these fellas will be around for quite a spell. Cause there sure ain't no shortage of stories to tell. Cause this old world's as weird as hell. Even if nobody listens, you know they'd maintain a fine disposition. Cause shooting the breeze is kind of their mission. The remedy to too much time on your hands is take a little listen to the dawn of Mantis. The remedy to too much time on your hands is take a little. To the dawn of Mantis